Well, now, good and gracious God, in these moments, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts together in this room be found pleasing in your sight. O God, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Well, brothers and sisters, grace to you this morning and peace from the Lord Jesus Christ. It's good to be back with you. Earl Weaver, who is a name well-known among people in these parts, or at least among some, uh, was for 17 years the manager of the Baltimore Orioles. Known as a master of molding players of great individual skill into a winning team, uh, the colorful Weaver also was famous for his umpire baiting. Uh, Often, when he disagreed with a call, he would storm out of the dugout, charge into the umpire's face, and scream something like, Are you going to get any better, or is this it? Well, as it happens, that very question is of central concern throughout this book. Our sacred text points again and again to this truth. The triune God is committed to our getting better. You can tell that a church is getting better when the people in it are actually growing up. No longer infants, as Paul put it, tossed by the waves and blown by the wind. Or as Brian McLaren put it 2,000 years later, God isn't just looking for more Christians, but better Christians. And so in the Church of Jesus, we don't stop with the question, how many are showing up? We're also eager to ask, how many are growing up? Are we, over time, becoming kinder, more tender-hearted, and forgiving? Are we becoming less selfish and judgmental? Do we exhibit a deeper joy, a wider love, a clearer integrity? Is this a community in which greedy people are becoming generous, guarded people becoming more open, anxious people are finding peace? You see, when the church is really being the church, when people are actually growing in faith, hope, and love, that's a church in which God, Jesus, and the Holy Spirit are at the center. And that's the kind of church we aspire always to be. In our text today, from the 14th chapter of Luke's Gospel, Jesus gives a dinner speech about a particular virtue— Luke's gospel is full of references to eating and banquets and sitting together at meals, and it's remarkable how much of Jesus' wisdom gets spoken at dinner tables. In his day, as in our day, at parties, sometimes the most important people tended to arrive a bit late, busy schedules and all. And Jesus, being who he was, no doubt arrived on time or early, And as I imagine this story, had taken a seat in the corner in a folding chair where he was having a fascinating conversation with one of the line cooks. Jesus loved talking with the help. And as people keep trickling in, Jesus begins to notice how the important ones seem to be full of themselves, enjoying the sense of people watching them and enjoying, most of all, the pride of position. In those days at banquets, as in some banquets today, there were better seats and worse seats, and there were people who seemed to assume that the better seats were for them. So as I imagine this scene, the host 
calls everyone to attention, taps a teaspoon against a glass, welcomes everyone to the party and says, we have with us tonight a very special guest, a great rabbi. I'd like to call him up to pray, only I can't seem to find him. And eventually they locate Jesus in the corner, in the folding chair, talking with the kitchen help. And the host calls out, please come on up, preacher. Can't have you sitting back there. Come on up and lead us in a prayer. And there's a fellow sitting in a chair that the host now invites Jesus to occupy, and he's embarrassed at how he has now got to get up and go take the seat that's left, which is in the back, in a folding chair, in the corner. And now that Jesus has everyone's attention, all of them expecting him to say, let us pray, he says instead in that disarmingly simple way of his, whenever you're invited to a party, don't come assuming the best seat is yours. For someone else may come who is invited to that place and you may need to take a lower seat. Here he may or may not have winked at the fellow who is sulking now in the corner in the folding chair. He says, when you come to a party, seek the lowest seat of all. For then, who knows, your host may say, friend, come up higher. And at this point, as I imagine it, everyone is smiling because all Jesus is doing here is imparting some good-humored common sense. Most of all, he's getting them ready to hear the word that to him is the most important word of all. Verse 11 Those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. Multiple times in the Gospels, Jesus says some version of that pronouncement. The least will become the greatest, the last will be first, the ones who lose are the ones who gain. Thirteen times in the Gospels, Jesus alludes to the wisdom of humility. See, for him, this is not some sideline virtue, but is an essential part of what it means to live lives in his company. Whoever exalts him or herself will be humbled. Whoever humbles the self will be exalted. So let's acknowledge just right off the bat that humility is a tricky thing to talk about, isn't it? What if I urge you this morning to be humble and you do it and then become proud of yourselves? C.S. Lewis wrote a great little book called The Screwtape Letters. Our young adults are reading it together this fall, and I'm so glad about that. It's a kind of fantasy about two of the devil's tempters and, and their work with human beings. There is a senior tempter named Screwtape and uh, his apprentice, whose name is Wormwood. Wormwood has this person that he's working on. They call him his patient. And to Wormwood's dismay, his patient has become a Christian. To his further dismay, his patient is on his way to becoming a mature Christian. He's growing. He's getting better. So Wormwood's mentor, Screwtape, writes him this advice, and this is what he says. I see only one thing to do at the moment. Your patient has become humble. Have you drawn his attention to that fact? Catch him at the moment when he's being really poor in spirit 
and smuggle into his mind the gratifying reflection, by Jove, I'm being humble. And almost immediately, pride at his own humility will appear. And if it occurs to him that this has happened and he makes an effort to stifle that pride, draw his attention to that fact, and on and on and on as long as you please. So we don't want to provoke anyone here today to the pride of humility. Some of us, I think, maybe have a negative association with this word because we've seen with our own eyes what passes for humility in this world. Can humility be overdone? Is it wrong to think of yourself as a piece of nothing? Of course it is, which is why Jesus never called us to think of ourselves as nothing. Remember how the Apostle Paul put it, who could never be accused of being overly humble, by the way. Paul said, let us not think more highly of ourselves than we ought to think, implying that there is a proper regard in which to hold ourselves, right? A healthy pride of self. Just as there can be the sin of thinking too highly of ourselves, there can be the sin of thinking too little of ourselves. To quote Screwtape again, he says, thousands of human beings have been brought up to think that humility means handsome people trying to pretend they're ugly and clever people trying to pretend they're fools. That's not humility. God's not calling us to be dishonest or to any kind of self-denigration. What God is calling us to is not to think too much about ourselves at all. The point is not a low opinion of ourselves. The point is self-forgetfulness. It's the freedom to be simply, wonderfully, honestly who we are without the anxiety that keeps us always looking around, comparing ourselves to everyone else and asking, how am I doing? How am I doing? How am I doing? It's the freedom to be okay with our abilities and with our limitations and freedom to be okay with the grace of God that turns us loose to serve something beyond ourselves. Don't you love the way Francis of Assisi put it? O divine master, grant that I may not so much seek to be consoled as to console, not so much to be understood as to understand, not so much to be loved as to love, for it is in giving that we receive, it's in pardoning that we're pardoned, it's in dying that we are born again to eternal life. So I, I want simply to ask this morning, what is it that gets in the way of that kind of self-forgetfulness? If I were to ask today, what is the opposite of humility? I have a hunch that most of us would probably say pride, meaning by pride, arrogance. You know, the haughty one is the one who isn't humble. But there are many other forms of pride than just arrogance, so many forms of self-obsession. And do you want to know what the root of it all is? The root of every form of self-possessed pride is fear. Fear, not feeling secure in the love of God. And once that fear has us, and it has had most of us at some point, our self-obsession takes all kinds of forms. May I mention just a few today? 
Some of us express our self-preoccupation in this particular culture by an obsession with how we look, spending an incredible amount of time and money in an effort to look better or an incredible amount of negative energy accusing ourselves for not looking as good as everybody else. Some of us are self-obsessed by way of self-pity. We hold our pain very close and we nurture it and tend it, refusing to believe that anybody else could be hurting as much as we can. Some of us express our self-obsession by not thinking, not by thinking such lofty thoughts about ourselves, but by choosing the opposite course of doing everything we can to think less of others. But what a small way to spend this one unrepeatable life. But I guess the most treacherous sin against humility is pride in our own goodness. As Dorothy Sayers said, the devilish strategy of pride is not that it attacks us at our weak points, but at our strong ones. At this point, we simply have got to be vigilant against self-righteousness, which has been called the sin of the Pharisees and of Baptists. Let's remember that when Jesus was here in the flesh, it was the self-righteous ones who made themselves his chief enemies. Let's confess that there are very few of us who don't find our way now and then, or maybe often, to being pharisaical. The more conservative ones will tend toward self-righteousness about correct doctrine and correct morals. The more liberal ones will tend toward self-righteousness about enlightenment. And we like to malign each other's differences. But the truth is, we've all landed in the same kind of pharisaical pride, and Jesus says, stop it. None of us in this room has that kind has, has time or space for that kind of self-congratulating arrogance. It divides God's children. And worst of all, it divides us from the rest of the world, which needs far more from us than being correct. There are people by the millions who don't need the church to be correct. They need us to be love. They need us to be Christ. We do well to remember the words Peter wrote in his brief little letter He said, God always resists those who are proud and gives grace to those who are humble. So how do we do this? How do we who are so habitually anxious and measuring ourselves by everybody else, how do we learn the humility of Jesus? Well, I think we can begin by remembering where these words today from Jesus come from. He said them at a party at which everyone there was an invited guest, right? Humility remembers that we are all guests here at the generous invitation of someone else. And as the rest of our text reminds us, God's guest list is far broader than we imagine. Every one of us comes into this world dependent on the sheer outrageous generosity of God. We are people who who do bring some gifts into this world, but there is not a gift in our hand that wasn't given to us by another. Understanding this is the beginning of humility. 
Well, like the people in Jesus' story, we have been invited to the most beautiful feast, the most generous table, the table that love has set for us. And you and I are invited to a calling so high we will never fully comprehend it. We've all been invited to a feast with a cross suspended over it all. Jesus humbled himself, we are told, by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And so Carlisle Marney once said, Jesus Christ is more real to me than I am to myself. And he meant it. And I can think of no greater need than for people like us than to find Christ to be more real than we find ourselves. That will be our humility and our joy. Thanks be to God. And so, gracious God, please save us from the exhaustion of self-obsession and save us from measuring ourselves by everybody else. And give us eyes for Christ and ears for his calling. Trusting in his invitation and turning from any lesser pursuit. Help us to live what we know in praise and love of the one who has lifted us so high. Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.